0: this is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock?
1: Tech story is front and centre. What will
0: this wind up doing to the cost curve?
2: Your connection from the London
0: market close to the US market action.
1: A significant sell-off in European assets. It
0: feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in.
1: This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. With Guy
0: Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years.
2: On Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening, welcome. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio, 5 p.m., in the city of London this Thursday, November the 17th. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Alex, much from the markets to think about today. You've got Jim Bullard from St. Louis, uh, the Federal Reserve talking about the idea maybe rates could get to 7% in the United States. That would certainly be a shock to many. Over here in the UK, it's all been about the autumn statement and massive fiscal consolidation from the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt.
0: Yep, and I have to wonder too, like, did he do the right thing? Like, was that what everyone wanted? Like, are we good now? Like, is our investors confident nope. now uh, in the UK? I don't know. I still think it all boils down to consumer spending too, and that was also key in the OBR's assessment of the autumn budget. It's also key here in the U.S. when you're looking at home sales rolling over. You're looking at Macy's doing well, but then Kohl's not, although the stock is actually up. Um, I think it's all about how are we spending. Nobody knows.
1: Uh, nobody does know. It's fascinating to watch the differences uh, between, say, Coles and Macy's. I, Macy's a few years ago was dead and buried, but then it sorted out its inventory management systems, and here we are. It seems to be outperforming. Macy's owns Bloomingdale's, right? That's next to the office.
0: Yes, yes. Store you know well. Ah, uh, very, very well. Um, although the sales have not been good. So to your point, they are managing inventory because the sales are nowhere to be seen. It's very distressing.
1: When Alex says sales, she means I. Like, discounts. No, we got to get like
0: 50, 60, 70% off people. Like we're not doing like 20% kind of thing. Like I I I'm doing deep sales. So, they did manage their inventory because I ain't shopping there.
1: Uh, Nancy Pelosi is currently making some remarks uh, in the House of Representatives in the United States. Her run as leader coming to an end uh, as the Republicans take that house. Uh, we're also seeing Alex mortgage rates in the United States posting their biggest drop since 1981. They have yep. fallen to a mere 6
0: I mean, that's still quite high. I just compared over the last year. But you're finally seeing that demand destruction because you just you just can't buy a house if it's too expensive or prices have to come down that much. Um, Maybe we've seen peak rates. That's a conversation to have.
1: Not according to Jim Bullard. Anyway, we'll come back. We'll talk more about Mr. Bullard in just a moment. Let's get some headlines first, though. Here's Charlie Pell.
3: I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Hunt has spoken. The Chancellor of the Exchequer is raising taxes for the UK's biggest earners as he seeks to stabilise public finances and shield the most vulnerable families from recession. Hunt says he will lower the threshold for paying the top 45% rate of income tax to $125,000. 140 pounds from 150,000 alongside a raft of measures to help pensioners and poorer households. He says people earning 150,000 pounds a year will pay an additional 1,200 pounds a year as a result. The UK is set to introduce road taxes on electric cars from 2025. It ends an exemption that was intended to spur adoption of zero emissions vehicles. Hunt says EVs will no longer be exempt from vehicle excise duty. Word came during today's autumn statement. A top executive at Burberry says London is losing out to Paris and Milan because Britain does not provide VAT-free shopping for tourists, as other European luxury capitals do. Julie Brown, Burberry's chief financial officer, says as hordes of travelers from America and the Middle East rush back in the wake of the pandemic, continental Europe is seeing a greater increase in tourists than the UK, in part because of Britain's disadvantage on value-added tax. That is the latest from the news desk. Lots going on. Guy Johnson back to you now in London.
1: Fully enough, Charlie, one of our regular guests emailed me about this very subject this afternoon saying that uh, they've been in London, they've been spending some money, but the the, the pound weakness was compensated for by the fact that the VAT story was such a pain. Anyway, I I just I bring that up anecdotally. Uh, Charlie Pellet will be back in 30 minutes time to update us on what is happening. Um, We will do that, uh, as I say, uh, half past the hour. But let's get back to what Charlie was just talking about there. The autumn statement delivered today by the UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt delivered a fiscal consolidation package worth some 55 billion dollars let's hear from Jeremy Hunt
3: today's statement delivers a consolidation of 55 billion pounds and means inflation and interest rates end up significantly lower we achieve this mr speaker in a balanced way in the short term as growth slows and unemployment rises we will use fiscal policy to support the economy. The OBR confirm that because of our plans, the recession is shallower and inflation is reduced.
1: Let's talk about talk about this a little bit more. Bloomberg UK government and Treasury reporter Joe Mays joins us on the line. Joining me here in the studio, Bloomberg UK economy reporter David Goodman. David, let me start with you. The objective in some ways today was to solidify the enhanced fiscal credibility that we've seen from this government over the last, what is it, six weeks. Did it achieve that? Did it go too far in attempting to achieve that? Hey, I think,
4: I mean, it's interesting because they pretty much did what was advertised in terms of the the consolidation. It was 55 billion pounds. That was what had been heavily trailed. That's what they did. And we had a bit of an adverse market reaction, but I mean we need to put that in context of what we saw after what Trust and Quartang did, obviously. Yep. So the pound is only down one percent, guilt yields are, are up. I mean Also that's a dollar
0: numbers. story and a US thing possibly too. So
4: Yeah, I mean I think the pound did fall during the statement and that but that's more I think to do with just the bleakness of the outlook that yep. we saw rather than anything that, that Hunt did in terms of austerity, I think. Just we all knew the the UK was heading for not particularly good place, but to have it kind of confirmed so starkly by by the OBR and mm-hmm. all the stuff around household income and house prices, it all just builds up to this picture where you're thinking, where where's growth going to come from? And yeah, I mean, the next couple of years are going to be grim for for all of us, I think, over here.
0: Um, Joe, when you take a look at the backloading of the austerity, what does that do for the political landscape?
5: Yeah, I mean, that's a very obvious political move by Hunt insofar as he doesn't want to impose pain on voters through worse public services ahead of that 2024 election. But it does mean that the next election becomes a very interesting debate between the Tories and Labour about spending plans. I and mean, will Labour say, we commit to also that, that, that big fiscal tightening that Hunter set out? Maybe they will, because they want to seem as economically credible as the Tories. But it certainly it saves... Jeremy Hunt from having to impose pain on voters just as they might be going to the ballot box in 2024. In terms
1: of, Joe, do you think today was about restoring fiscal credibility, or do you think it was about
5: setting a trap for the Labour Party?
0: <laughs> can they be both true? Um, <laughs> yeah, probably. I think they can
5: both be true, yes. And uh, I think it's more the former, but a happy consequence of that is that you put Labour in that position where they, they will probably likely sign up to it because they don't want to be seen as less fiscally credible than the Tories. All
4: right. Yeah, I think if you if you if you think about the kind of what they've done to voters, though, I mean, it's yes, they've they've pushed back some of the pain, but fifty five percent of households are going to be worse off as a result of what's happened today. So it's not, yep. and obviously that's the fifty five richest or fifty five percent of the households at the top end of the distribution. That's it's not just the richest who are getting clobbered by this. It's it's a lot of people further down. and I think that will have an impact, maybe on voters because obviously that's a huge part of the kind of Tory heartland. You'd have thought who mm-hmm. this is affecting. So it's not quite kind of. Well, a free a free pass for the for the Tories, yeah.
0: So we were talking to um Simon French of Panmu- Panmore Gordon and I thought it was really Interesting of what he was saying in terms of the difference between what the BOE and what the OBR uh, sees in terms of their recessionary forecast. And that the real distinction between the two, whether you're looking at eight quarters of a downdraft or five quarters of a downdraft, really came down to how everyone's going to be spending their savings. Do they keep it, in which case the recession's deeper, or do they spend it, in which case the recession is shorter? Um, David, do we have a read on this? Like, what did you make of that?
4: I think there's a couple of things going on there. Partly the BOE's forecasts were based off this kind of fantasy of interest rates going above 5%, which they've kind of explicitly ruled out. So they kind of, their hands were tied to that extent. Also, one of the key differences is that the BOE were, when they made an assumption about what energy support would happen next year, they said, look, we're going to get around about £3,400, 3, pounds is the cap. The government today said that's going to be £3,000. That's a pretty big difference, and yep. given households, that extra disposable income, and that kind of thing is obviously going to make a difference to to demand and also there was about 15 billion pounds worth of support for vulnerable households and again the l- lower income households so again that is something that will lift demand so that helps explain to an extent i think why the boe's forecasts were more downbeat this time and maybe in february once everything kind of gets factored in then we'll see them kind of coalesce towards maybe where the obr are now i think the boe obviously as we talked about a lot of the time we're flying somewhat blind on fiscal policy and this is what happens when you make forecast two weeks before a major fiscal event you're going to end up yep. getting wrong. yeah I getting wrong.
1: Wrong. but but if you yeah. as you say your timing is but crazy. they're
4: always going to be wrong <laughs> like they were made and they're always going to be wrong i think is the point
1: joe what what when you think about the british public and how they are going to perceive the economy what what is the british economy what what is the british public's priority right now in terms of how they ascribe importance to various factors Up. Is it about inflation? Jeremy Hunt kind of led today's statement. We're talking about the fact that this is going to be helping deal with inflation or is it public services or is it uh, taxes? I'm just wondering how the British public see the relative importance of all these different factors.
5: Yeah, I mean, that's going to be the big political question of the next couple of years, as where does the British public ascribe blame for the higher prices they're seeing in the shops? Do they buy the kind of conservative narrative of this being, broadly speaking, a global economic situation that's worsened and it's... Primarily because of Russia's war in Ukraine, or do they still feel an overhang of the Liz Truss premiership, and do they still believe the labour argument that there's still a, a premium on interest uh, on mortgage payments because of higher interest rates? So that episode is going to be a massive kind of battle of blame here as to how much of it is out of the Tories' hands and how much of it is, is, is due to what they've done. And indeed, is the low growth of the UK scene is that because of the Tory government's failure to to promote growth or was that out of their hands? It's all going to be about that kind of blame game and who wins it. I think the Tories think that they won the 2015 general election having gone through a period of austerity through the 2010s. So they they, they think that they can still win in this context, but they need the British public to believe them that they have there is no alternative better economic strategy and that labor can do any better. So that's the kind of approach they need. Do the British public buy that? Mm -hmm. Well, we'll see. Going into a recession, it gives me a massive squeeze for
0: them. Uh, Joe, I mean, a big part of that is also going to be helping the workforce. And and, and part of the plan was that some on welfare are going to have to meet with, like, work advisors and stuff. I mean, that feels like a pretty interesting attempt to get people back into a workforce that is rapidly shrinking. What did you make of that?
5: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one part of, of the measures that they'll need. I mean, another big part is health spending. They know that there's a large inactive population in the UK often post-COVID, uh, the effect there, they need to address that. I think also there's a key OBR assumption that migration is going to be higher than previously forecast. So that's like an, a tacit acceptance that this government is going to, are going to pull the lever slightly to allow more foreign workers in to plug labour shortages, and that kind of boosts the growth outlook. So, yeah, it, it, the labour force is... is is one of the biggest issues
1: that the UK government has to address. David, where does this leave the, the Bank of England? Just to come back to the bank. Um, as you say, the forecasts were probably wrong. They are probably going to have to reassess those forecasts, but that was an inevitable kind of development. Nevertheless, we have incredibly high inflation in this country at the moment, north of 11%. Uh, we have a Bank of England that sounded, I thought, a little bit more dovish last time round. I think they did sound a little bit more dovish last time round. But but nevertheless, you, you have to plug this fiscal story into their current thinking. Does today's fiscal story change their thinking on whether or not it is 50 basis points next time around or 75 basis points next time around?
4: I'm not sure on that 50-75 question. I think that they seem quite clear that 50 was going to be their preferred option. Or oh, yeah. definitely 75 wasn't what they wanted to do. I think maybe around the edges that this thing makes it a little bit more likely the peak rate might have to be a bit higher just because of the the demand boost we were just talking about but that is maybe them saying well i mean if we were saying it was going to be peaking at four or 4.25 maybe 4.5 like a little bit but nothing nothing major i mean compared to what would have happened if the trust budget had gone through and and hadn't been Mm-hmm. dismantled straight away obviously that was to be a huge boost to demand and they've had to really lean against this i think now there's they have maybe do a little bit more but nothing nothing serious i mean i think obviously that all depends on how we go here and if, if the energy cap from from april is a bit better than they're expecting for mm-hmm. households that means inflation comes down a little bit quicker so that that will really be what kind of takes off a lot of the pressure i think if we see inflation suddenly fall pretty quickly from april then that allows them to take their foot off the accelerator well. But that will obviously take some time to to filter through. I think what was going to be really tricky for them is if we had a peak in October of where Mm -hmm. we got to like 11.1% and then we had another peak in April. And if inflation is still going up, it becomes very hard for you to take your foot off the the gas in terms of uh, rate hikes.
0: Guys, thanks a lot. Really, really appreciate it. It was really fascinating. I also love how vibrant Parliament is. I really wish Congress was like that. Um, all right, guys, appreciate it. David Goodman, Bloomberg UK Economy Reporter, and Joe Mays, a Bloomberg UK Government and Treasury Reporter. Guy, you've been talking about this for so long. Now, what do you look forward to when it comes to? I-,
1: I wasn't looking forward to this. Well, it, this but, was, I, but in it, terms it, like it is,
0: market moving, it's a moment. It, like it, now, it, what? It oh, feels yeah, pretty
1: grim 20%. over here. Maybe some good news. Maybe that maybe it will be. Christmas is coming. I hear. Maybe is maybe it? that could be. You is guys it? get Thanksgiving before that, so I've got to get through that first. But Christmas is definitely coming.
0: Wow, it's so positive of you. That's really weird. Guys, just trying to bring it. Um, but I wonder, is it is it going to be just continued inflation reads? Is that what we're going to be looking for? Anyway, uh, we're going to discuss the OBR's forecast next. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Let's continue our discussion about today's autumn statement from Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. Uh, Earlier today, down in Westminster, Bloomberg's Lizzie Burden spoke with David Miles. He is uh, a member of the Budget Responsibility Committee, at the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility. Um, And they basically started by talking about whether or not actually this is a statement that is going to balance the books, that is going to restore credibility, even if a lot of the backloading is going to take place after the next general election in 2024.
6: Well, I think, I think backloading was the sensible thing to do, though, because the support that the government's giving to households comes through at the, at the right time, both for individual households when the energy bills are so high, but also from the point of view of the broader economy, that one wants to support demand, particularly next year and early part of 2024, when otherwise the recession, which is very likely to be happening right now, would be significantly deeper. So I think there's, there's a clear logic to the strategy of helping households spending a lot of money doing that right now and then in a sense clawing some of that money back, a lot of that money back in a way, so that you stop the stock of debt just ever rising relative to GDP.
2: And so has the Chancellor overcompensated in terms of plugging the fiscal gap or is there a risk that we need more austerity if conditions worsen?
6: Well, what the Chancellor has announced is a profile for taxes and spending, which just about, on our OBR central forecast anyway, just about stabilises the stock to GDP five years from now. In fact, it slightly falls right at the end of the forecast horizon. But the margin by which that target is met is pretty small. It's £9 billion or so, and given the size of government spending and the shocks that have hit the economy, that's a small number. Just to give you an idea of how small a number that is in many ways, just in the last week since we produced our forecast and finalised the numbers, actually interest rates on government bonds have fallen a little bit. And that amount of headroom, 9 billion or so, if you use the gilt yields that are in the markets today, would become uh, about 20 billion. So that just shows you how much that can move just in the space of a few days and you're trying to forecast what's going to happen five years in the future. So it's a very tight margin.
2: And your fellow Bank of England, former Bank of England policymaker Michael Saunders, told me this week that Brexit's permanently damaged the UK economy. Without it, we probably wouldn't have austerity today. Was he right?
6: Well, the the OBR has taken account of its best guess as to what... Brexit does to the UK economy for some years now, and I don't think there's any reason to change that assessment just in the last several months. So what's actually happened to the UK economy is that since March when we at the OBR produced our last forecast and today, there's been a lot of things that have hit the UK economy from outside. Interest rates have gone up, that's a global phenomena. Energy prices have continued to rise, it's a global phenomena. And the reason why the fiscal outlook has worsened so much relative to the beginning of the year is not really to do with developments on Brexit, which in the long run may well have a somewhat negative effect on the, on the UK economy. But that's not the reason things have got worse. Things have got worse because of these major global shocks which have hit pretty much every rich country in the world.
2: And the Trade Secretary, Kemi Badenoch, told me earlier this month that the OBR's forecasts have never been, and I quote, quite right. Does it worry you that even though Liz Truss is out of number 10, senior cabinet ministers are still openly undermining the institution's calculations?
6: Actually, I don't think that is undermining what we do. I completely agree. Our forecasts are always wrong. Everybody's (laughs) forecasts are wrong. Why should we listen to you? Well, let me give you an analogy, if I might. You take a sat-nav, okay? I've got to drive to Exeter tomorrow. I put in the sat-nav, how long is it going to take me? It says three hours, 51 minutes. Is it going to take me? Is it really going to be three hours fifty-one? I can guarantee it won't be. So that's a forecast, right? It's, it's guaranteed to be wrong. Furthermore, you start driving, and the thing changes as you go along because road conditions change and it's responding to news. So in that sense, a sat nav is always wrong. It, it's guaranteed to give you a forecast that's wrong. Are they useless? No, they're of some value. There's some value because it's telling you something about a plausible future scenario. The direction scenario, of travel. The direction that you might be going in. And that's all forecasts can ever do. That's all the OBR can do. But but it's right that the forecast is going to be blown off course by stuff that you can't predict.
2: And you were sidelined in the mini budget. It was a, one of the many reasons for the market turmoil after it. Should there be a rule change so that the OBR has to provide a forecast alongside any fiscal statement? governments could always say that there's a crisis?
6: I mean the rules of the game are that we need to produce a forecast twice a year, twice in every financial year and at the time of budgets that's normally when it happens. Of course the mini budget by definition wasn't a full budget it was a mini budget Um, and there has been I think a bit of a tendency for governments in recent years to make fiscal announcements outside of formal budgets. Uh, that may be not the most helpful, helpful development, um, but it is up to the government to decide what's a budget, what's not a budget, and we do have to produce two forecasts a year. So no formal rules were broken in what happened in September, Well, it didn't, didn't play out in the best possible way for the government.
0: That was uh, David Miles, member of the Budget Responsibility Committee, speaking with Bloomberg's uh, Lizzie Burden. I just have to go back to her question of, like, why should we listen to you? That was the best anti-job description I think I've ever heard. Like, maybe you listen to us, maybe you don't. The direction is important, but really we're usually wrong anyway. I have to say, I laughed pretty hard about that one.
1: Yeah. Uh, um, All of these things have to be based on something. And you always know that the forecasts are going to be wrong. But I guess you have to start somewhere and you have to have a general sense of the direction. That's kind of what he's pointing us in the direction of. Forecasts are going to be wrong, but they give us an idea of where we're going. The problem is, though, recently these forecasts have been way off.
0: Really, really wrong. Way off. (laughs) Like not even like, oh, we missed by a bit. I mean, they're missing by a mile. And again, I feel like this goes back to the we just don't know what people are doing with their money. And we don't know how much money they, they think that they have and that they can have and that they can spend.
1: Well, it, it's it's how they behave. When they hear bad news, do they um, say, I'm going to substitute these savings, I'm going to use them to substitute the uh, the loss I'm going to make on my taxes and continue to spend? Or do they say, you know what, I'm complete, completely retrenching? Uh, and, and as we were hearing earlier, that's the big difference between where the OBR is and where the Bank of England is. And that's going to be the really interesting tussle over the next few months. Anyway, this is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good
0: evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. It's just past 5.30 and we have some history uh, being made here in the United States. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says that she will not seek re-election to the Democratic leadership. This is after she... Uh, led the House as Speaker for many, many years, the first woman to do so um, now with the control of the House going to Republicans. Um, Representative Kevin McCarthy is going to be taking that helm, and she is stepping aside uh, as leader of the Democratic Party in the House. She says it is time for the future. All right. uh, In the markets, we're looking at an S&P that's off the lows, now down just by five-tenths of one percent. We kind of moved off the lows of the session once Brent rolled rolled under $90 a barrel. Maybe that's a demand destruction story that we're seeing there. We're still seeing a uh, sell-off all across the Treasury market, particularly in the front end, with a two-year yield up by 11 basis points. And we got a lot of uh, earnings still to parse through retail again some of a head-scratcher here. Kohl's withdraws guidance, but the stock is kind of up, and Macy's does really, really well. We'll break that down in just a moment. Let's get some other headlines for you. Here's Charlie Pellett. Hi,
3: thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. The U.K.'s oil and gas industry is warning that an increase in the windfall tax announced today threatens investment in the sector. Changes to the tax code make it difficult for companies to plan spending on new infrastructure that could last for decades, as according to the industry lobby group, Oil and gas production is in long-term decline in the North Sea, even as the UK continues to rely on the fossil fuels for much of its heat, power, and transportation. Jeremy Hunt outlining that £55 billion package of tax rises and spending cuts for the UK to plug a hole in the nation's finances and restore confidence among investors. The Chancellor of the Exchequer hit the wealthy with higher taxes on wages. President Vladimir Zelensky says Ukrainian officials will travel to the site of a missile blast in eastern Poland as Kiev wants to be part of the investigation into the incident. His remarks came in a video link interview at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. French President Emmanuel Macron says sports should not be politicized days after it was announced to criticism that he will be attending the World Cup in Qatar if France reaches the semi-finals. Speaking in Bangkok, Macron said issues about Qatar's human rights record and the environment were, quote, questions you have to ask yourself when you award the event. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Charlie Pellet. as promised. Let's go to some retail here. So if you recall, Target didn't work out so well. Walmart, Walmart did really well. Uh, Kohl's withdrew guidance. Um, Macy's did well. Now, some of that is idiosyncratic. Some of that is maybe more of the consumer. So let's get more into that. Um, Bloomberg spoke to Jeff Gannett. He's the CEO of Macy's, also the chairman of Macy's. Um, and they talked about holiday spending to kind of set up this conversation.
7: What we're seeing is a return back to the 2019 pre-pandemic buying pattern uh for the holiday that's why we're really saying what does that mean for thanksgiving what does that mean for cyber week what does that mean for the last 10 days before christmas so we're adjusting our plans to accommodate anticipated higher peaks
0: that was jeff Kennett, uh macy's chairman and ceo i didn't hear him mention sales and this is the inventory point guy yep. just
1: just for those of us that don't spend our time shopping in the United States, Macy's versus Kohl's. Just describe the difference between these stores. I'm sure you could do it for us perfectly.
0: No, I don't know about that. But Kohl's is where you go when you want to downshift, where you want to spend less and get something basic that's not going to last you very long. Then you kind of go to Kohl's. Macy's is a little bit more high-end, and I put that in quotes because it's not like a Bloomingdale's or a Saks or anything along those lines. they own
1: Bloomingdale's, don't they?
0: Yes, they do. But if you're talking about the actual, like, Macy's, Macy's store, they're lower-end, and they have different kind of deals than, like, a Bloomingdale's or a Saks, etc. But if you're going to trade down and you're worried about your wallet, I don't feel like you're going to Macy's.
1: Okay. That kind of makes sense. And the, and and Macy's has got much better at inventory management, so there's going to be fewer sales there.
0: I know. It's very sad. Um, let's get someone who's smarter than this on, uh, on, on this with me. Uh, Olivia Rockman, a Bloomberg U.S. consumer and retail reporter. So, Olivia, why aren't I seeing such great sales at Bloomingdale's? What am I missing?
7: You were hitting right on the point at the beginning of the program, Alex, in terms of the Bloomingdale's versus Macy's consumer. And so, Bloomingdale's actually had really strong growth in the third quarter, but but sales at the Macy's stores declined, which is something that investors didn't really seem to take note of. But it, it goes to this idea that the lower-income and middle-income consumers are pulling back and are spending less, as we saw at Kohl's, whereas the higher-income consumers that shop at places like Bloomingdale's are still spending.
1: If we are seeing people sort of stepping back, Olivia, if you've got a lot of inventory, you've got a big problem. Is that where we're getting the differentiation here between, say, Macy's and Kohl's?
7: Macy's was really diligent about their inventory throughout the beginning part of this year. And so they have had to discount less because they just don't have so much stuff to clear through, whereas Kohl's has had to be a little bit more deep in their discounting. Uh, Macy's is a little bit more sheltered from it because they have fewer private label brands, so they can cancel orders from suppliers more easily. But either way, we're, we're going to continue to see potential weakness from this lower income consumer going into the fourth quarter.
0: Well, it wasn't so long ago where I feel like we would all be talking about Macy's, man. Macy's sucks. They're not doing well at all. What ha- What happened? When did they change? How quickly were they able to do that? In February 2020, they implemented
7: this program called Polaris, which is a strategy to close unsuccessful stores, open smaller format stores that are not in traditional malls, but in, you know, more urban areas. And so, so far, it looks like some of that strategy is paying off. But that said, it really is Bloomingdale's and, and the city brand, they own Blue Mercury that are driving their sales. Are people...
1: During the pandemic, nobody went shopping. Obviously, um, people have returned to stores. Do we know how much is coming in terms of the, in terms of the top line? The, the amount they're selling mm-hmm. is coming from stores, and how much is online?
7: So the e-commerce to bricks and mortar balance has basically returned to 2019 levels. So the predictions that e-commerce was going to continue to be this big boom following the pandemic hadn't really materialized. And most shoppers that were store shoppers before are back in
0: stores now. hmm Interesting. I'm still iffy on that. Wherever the deals are, I will go. Um, Olivia, I'm wondering, when you take, go through all the retail numbers that you've been going through, have we learned anything about the consumer? Like, Do we know how people are spending their money and how they feel about their wealth effect? Or is this an idiosyncratic sort of situation?
7: I think that the economic data from retail sales yesterday really paints the picture, which is that consumers are spending on food. They're going to restaurants, but they're not really spending as much on electronics anymore. They're cutting back on hobby stores and and books and apparel. And so necessities are doing fine. We saw that at Walmart. They did great in grocery. But things that are more discretionary are either being cut back or people are looking for deals. I mean, we saw really strong growth at TJ Maxx, which is a discount off price retailer and so that seems to be the emerging picture so far this season
1: olivia great stuff thank you very much indeed really appreciate the coverage Bloomberg's olivia rockman on what is happening with the retailing story stateside
7: alex over here the,
1: the story in some ways today has been about burberry mm. and the revitalization of burberry um they've got a really cool new designer uh, and apparently britishness is going to be on which they is going to be the theme on which they base their future which just slightly concern me at the moment because Britishness doesn't feel particularly positive at the moment.
0: No, but Plaid does.
1: <laughs> plaid is Czech for everybody so- that wants a translation.
0: Yeah. Okay. So sorry. Um, yeah, and also like really aggressive growth for tag forecasts, like two to three yeah. years to grow revenue to four billion uh, pounds, and then after that to five billion pounds. Even though we could be in a recessionary environment for a bit. I mean, it was pretty aggressive. And also, you're welcome because apparently it's a lot of Americans going over and buying Burberry stuff. Not me, because again, no sales. But that's just me. Um, okay. Coming up, we'll get your crypto check on what's going on with the industry. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. Listen to Cable Bloomberg, DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. I feel like it's 540. Let's check in on crypto. And I say that because I feel like we're getting a drip, drip, drip feed of of the line of where all the money is not flowing into from FTX. We just don't know the next shoe to fall. It does feel like we're literally tugging on a thread and things just keep unraveling.
1: It's I honestly I thought we'd reach peak craziness, but we ain't there yet. Um I get du- I got a new CEO at FTX and he's basically gone in and you, you get the sense he is utterly amazed at what has been going on. There have been loans to executives, there has been collateral used here, but uh, maybe it's not collateral. Um, they don't know where all the uh, all the assets mm-hmm. I, it is
0: amazing. Well, to, so, so to that point, so this was the the latest revelation here is that Top executives at FTX got loans from Almeida, which is the hedge fund firm of SBF. Now, remember, Almeida also got loans from FTX using customer funds. A, where is the collateral for all of this? What is the collateral for all of this? And also, what? That just sounds crazy. Uh, Katie Greifeld is joining us now. She's going to help us break it down. So explain to me how some of this winds up making any sense at all.
8: Um, I don't think it actually makes a ton of sense, and I think that's part of the huge problem. I mean, just in the last week, it's uh, come to light just how interconnected the two arms of SPF were when you're talking about the exchange and then the trading arm. And, I mean, that's what's being untangled right now, and that's sort of uh, the trickle that we're seeing come out in some of the bankruptcy filings today.
1: Um. Yeah. In terms of understanding the assets that actually are there, how far down the road are we to understanding what is left?
8: You know, it doesn't feel like we're very much close to that at all when you think about uh, how just the magnitude of coins that are still missing. I mean, let me pull it up. What did we learn today that what they've only located about, I don't know, 700, 700 and something exactly exactly so there's still a big hole there and I uh, that is uh, has to be one of the top priorities here
0: well Katie if a lot of these loans were backed by FTT which is the t- token associated with FTX and that in essence is almost yeah. zero mm. could the money like just be gone I don't want you to speculate but I, but I, I just want, I just want to understand what that could look like.
8: Well, I'll put it in someone else's word, uh, as journalists often do. So I mean, it is the there's a pure fact there, which is if your collateral is going down to zero, that's just how the numbers work. But it was interesting to have binance CEO uh, CZ on CNBC today uh, saying that you know he would be concerned about anyone using the tokens that they create for leverage as a collateral. Of course, he's taking a bit of a victory lap here, uh, having backed out of that deal. And I don't know, at this point, looking pretty much unblemished, but it's a fair point.
3: So what is, so right
1: now, okay. Katie, but uh, but, uh, when we, okay, let's talk about Binance. Yeah. Are people speculating that other exchanges, other setups have maybe as lax controls as we've seen at FTX? This is a pretty damning indictment on the whole industry.
8: It is. It is. And I think it's interesting that, I mean, even U.S. publicly listed companies, I'm thinking about Coinbase, for example, which comes under the purview of the SEC. Again, this is a public company. Uh, It's just being battered here. I mean, if you look at the the declines this week, it's down uh, well over double digits. And in terms of the other exchanges, there are a lot of concerns. I think Crypto.com mistakenly sending uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of coins to uh the wrong wallet didn't exactly restore confidence in them in the uh, system overall but just feels like everyone at this point mm-hmm. is waiting for the next show. Katie, uh, thanks a lot, Katie Greifeld
0: joining us. I have to say there was an article on Bloomberg that talked about employees of FTX, from talk executives to to lawyers, for example, and how they felt when they learned the news. I mean Apparently, executives were, like, throwing up. They were just, like, so upset by everything. I mean, imagine. And your life savings might be wrapped up in that. Anyway, it's a hot mess, uh, as one might say. All right, coming up, we'll talk more about the economy. We got some housing numbers out. They weren't great. Uh, Also, we'll talk about Jim Bowler. Just how hawkish is he? This is Bloomberg.
3: This is
2: The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg
3: Radio. Even under these generous assumptions, the policy rate still isn't at a zone that might be considered sufficiently restrictive. To get to this sufficiently restrictive level of policy, uh, we'll need to increase the policy rate further.
1: That was Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis President Jim Bullard setting the world on fire a little bit earlier on. Basically, he's now saying that the Fed should raise interest rates to at least 5 to five and a quarter percent, basically to deal with the highest inflation that we 've seen in the United States uh, in over forty years, uh, this was the quote in the past I have said four point seven five to five this was uh, him speaking to reporters um, in Kentucky, but based on this analysis today, I would say five to five and a quarter is the minimum level that Fed fund rates should proceed to now. He talked about a range of basically five to seven percent. 7% uh, is a, uh, a rate that is way beyond where the markets currently have the uh, the Fed priced. Uh, joining us now to discuss this, Bloomberg's Mike McKee. Mike, what would it take to get the Federal Reserve to raise the Fed's funds rate to
9: 7%? Inflation not moving over the next year. <laughs> uh, if inflation were to stay high, then the Fed would have no choice but to keep going. And basically what... Uh, Bullard was doing was a thought exercise of what would be the worst case scenario. He wasn't suggesting it was going to happen, but he was using the Taylor rule, uh, the rule that helps you figure out what rates would be, uh, to plug in numbers that would be the kind of thing that uh, you you would have a a Fed, a worried Fed, <laughs> a much higher inflation rate, or an inflation rate that's so sticky and doesn't come down. But the five and a quarter, that's just about where the market is priced right now. So he's not uh, doing anything outrageous.
1: But, that, but in that's terms of the what maximum for case. the market. That's the maximum for the market. He's talking about this being the minimum for the Fed.
0: And they're also looking at the market still looking at cuts for the back half of next year.
9: Well, yeah, that, that part I think everybody in the Fed would disagree with and would tell people, certainly don't price those in. I mean, they, they start looking at cuts at the uh, May-June meeting time period. Um, that is based, I guess, on the idea that we would be in recession uh, by that time. And most of the people who think we will go into recession think it will be later in the year. But it all depends on how fast inflation yep. goes down, and that was another interesting thing that... Uh, Jim Bullard had to say he thought that once disinflation starts it's going to go very quickly.
1: Well, yeah, uh, that's well that's what okay, let's just talk about that because in some ways does a higher rate from the Fed, a higher terminal rate make cutting cut, does, does that mean the cuts forward and make them more aggressive on the downside? I if they if they go too far do they then have to react more quickly and cut more?
9: Well, I hate to say that would be data-dependent, but that would be data-dependent. It depends on uh, the reaction of the economy. If inflation comes down and unemployment doesn't go up a lot, then they wouldn't have to be as aggressive. And they don't want to be aggressive in cutting because they don't want to repeat The mistakes of the 1970s, 80s, where they cut too soon and then had to raise rates again because inflation didn't go away. Now, you have people like Bill Dudley arguing on the Bloomberg Terminal yesterday that uh, the Fed, they can't do that. That, uh, Unemployment is going to jump because it has always jumped when it starts to go up because the Fed is tightening. So, if that's the case, then that would influence how fast they would come back down. But it's also going to be a question of uh, we may get to a period where they have to decide which is more important. Unemployment is Mm -hmm. rising significantly, but inflation is not coming down as fast as they like. So what do you do? Keep rates where they are, raise rates, or do you cut?
0: Well, Bloomberg Economics was saying that it looks like the market is still expecting the Fed to react to slower growth in a way that they won't, that they won't be reacting to a recession the same way we might have thought over the last 15 years.
9: That seems to be the argument the Fed's making, that we are committed to this, we're not going to do the Fed put this time. But uh, markets only know what they know, and 90%, I think, of the people who are – I I would go higher than 90% of the people who are on trading desks now were not here when Paul Volcker was the uh, chairman of the Fed. So they don't have an experience with that, and and they're doing what they know.
1: Um, U.S. mortgage rates have just posted their biggest weekly decline since 1981. Now, they've only fallen down to 6.61%, but it's a fairly precipitous drop uh, week on week. Is that a problem for the Federal Reserve?
9: Probably not. It's still very high. Uh, yeah. And uh, these rates can be volatile. A lot of times, what happens is uh, it, part of it's the mix of what's selling, and, and part of it is uh, uh, the demand for mortgages to banks that make a lot of money on their mortgages. And if people are not taking out mortgages and they've padded the mortgage a little bit, then maybe they can cut back a little bit and bring them down but I would wait and see if that remains the case. Now, mortgages are not tied directly to the Fed. They're influenced by a number of different factors yep. in the markets. So, um, but it's an even the financial keep, conditions. Even if the Fed keeps raising, I'm not sure that would they would go much higher than they had been before.
0: Um Mike, we're near on the end of the year. Um, what is going to be the conversation over the next six weeks? Guy and I were doing sort of a look-ahead yesterday. And we were like, what are people really going to be talking about? Like, we know inflation's high. We're still debating the Fed. You know, markets are going to be repositioning and rebalancing for the end of the year. What are you really focused on? Like, what's going to move the needle?
9: It's really going to be the inflation reports. The PCE at the end of this month and the uh, CPI that comes out on the 13th, and the Fed Fed meetings the 14th of December. Those are going to really influence what goes on between now and then. And then after that, because we probably get a 50 basis point move, and that puts them up to 4.5, gets it within striking distance of that 5% number. After that, then everybody is going to start watching with one eye on the inflation numbers and one eye on various growth indicators to see if there is Mm. any impact of that. Uh, I would just throw in end of the year. We'll also be watching liquidity in the markets because mm. that's always an issue. And now there has been more focus on it because the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet.
0: Mm. We both yeah, kind of oombed like at the same time. Need that Mike, Mike, thanks ominous a lot. I mean, <laughs> <at the end. laughs> Appreciate it. Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. And I'm watching retail sales. Guy, you?
1: Uh, Coming up tomorrow, I think I'm watching the fact that it's Friday. It has been a a fairly hectic week, to put it mildly. I think we'll continue to see fallout uh, from this autumn statement. I'm going to watch to see what that looks like tomorrow morning. This is Bloomberg.